Chapter Two of the Best Man. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Mattern. The Best Man by Grace Livingston Hill. Chapter Two. They were surrounded immediately by a crowd in which policemen were a prominent feature. The chauffeur seemed dazed in the hands of the officers. A little barefoot, white-faced figure huddled limply in the midst showed Gordon what had happened. Also, there were menacing glances towards himself and a show of lifted stones. He heard one boy say, "'You bet he's in a hurry to get away. Them kind allers is. They don't care who they kills, they don't.' A great horror seized him. The cab had run over a newsboy and perhaps killed him. Yet instantly came the remembrance of his commission. "'Don't let anything hinder you. Make it a matter of life and death.' Well. It looked as if this was a matter of death that hindered him now. They bundled the moaning boy into the taxicab, and as Gordon saw no escape through the tightly packed crowd who eyed him suspiciously, he climbed in beside the grimy little scrap of unconscious humanity, and they were off to the hospital to the tune of Don't let anything hinder you, don't let anything hinder you, until Gordon felt that if it did not stop soon, he would go crazy. He meditated opening the cab door and making his escape in spite of the speed they were making, but a vision of broken legs and a bed in the hospital for himself held him to his seat. One of the policemen had climbed on in front with the chauffeur, and now and again he glanced back as if he were conveying a couple of prisoners to jail. It was vexatious beyond anything, and all on account of that white dog. Could anything be more ridiculous than the whole performance? His annoyance and irritation almost made him forget that it was his progress through the streets that had silenced this might beside him. But just as he looked at his watch for the fifth time, the boy opened his eyes and moaned, and there was in those eyes a striking resemblance to the look in the eyes of the dog, of whose presence he had but just rid himself. Gordon started. In spite of himself, it seemed as if the dog were reproaching him through the eyes of the child. Then suddenly the boy spoke. Will you stay by me till I'm mended? whispered the weak little voice. Gordon's heart leaped in horror again, and it came to him that he was being tried out this day to see if he had the right stuff in him for hard tasks. The appeal in the little street boy's eyes reached him as no request had ever yet done, and yet he might not answer it. Duty, life and death duty. Called him elsewhere, and he must leave the little fellow whom he had been the involuntary cause of injuring to suffer and perhaps to die. It cut him to the quick not to respond to that urgent appeal. Was it because he was weary that he was visited just then by a vision of Julia Bentley with her handsome lips curled scornfully? Julia Bentley would not have approved of his stopping to carry a boy to the hospital any more than to care for a dog's comfort. Look here, Kitty. He said gently, leaning over the child, I'd stay by you if I could, but I've already made myself late for an appointment by coming so far with you. Do you know what duty is? The child nodded sorrowfully. Don't you mind me, he murmured weakly. Just you go. I'm game all right. Then the voice trailed off into silence again, and the eyelids fluttered down upon the little grimy, unconscious face. Gordon went into the hospital for a brief moment to leave some money in the hands of the authorities for the benefit of the boy and a message that he would return in a week or two if possible, then hurried away. Back in the cab once more, 
he felt as if he had killed a man and left him lying by the roadside while he continued his unswerving march toward the hideous duty which was growing momently more pretentious and to be relieved of which he would gladly have surrendered further hope of his chief's favor he closed his eyes and tried to think but all the time the little white face of the child came before his vision and the mocking eyes of julia bentley tantalized him as if she were telling him that he had spoiled all his chances and hers by his foolish soft-heartedness though what else could he have done that he had done he asked himself fiercely he looked at his watch it was at least ten minutes ride to the hotel the best time they could make thanks to his man the process of dressing for evening would not take long for he knew that everything would be in place and he would not be hindered he would make short work of his toilet but there was his suitcase it would not do to leave it at the hotel neither must he take it with him to the house where he was to be a guest there was nothing for it but to go around by the way of the station where it would have to be checked that meant a longer ride and more delay but it must be done arrived at the hotel at last and in the act of signing the unaccustomed john burnham in the hotel registry there came a call to the telephone with a hand that trembled from excitement he took up the receiver his breath went from him as though he had just run up five flights of stairs yes hello oh mrs holman yes burnham i've but just arrived i was delayed a wreck ahead of the train very kind of you to invite me i'm sure yes i'll be there in a few moments as soon as i can get rid of the dust of travel thank you good-bye it all sounded very commonplace to the clerk who was making out bills and fretting because he could not get off to take his girl to the theatre that night but as gordon hung up the receiver he looked around furtively as if expecting to see a dozen detectives ready to seize upon him it was the first time he had ever undertaken a commission under an assumed name and he felt as if he were shouting his commission through the streets of new york the young man made short work of his toilet just as he was leaving the hotel a telegram was handed him it was from his chief and so worded that to the operator who had copied it down it read like a hasty call to boston but to his cold enlightened eyes it was merely a blind to cover his exit from the hotel and from new york and set any possible hunters on a wrong scent he marvelled at the wonderful mind of his chief who thought out every detail of an important campaign and forgot not one little possible point where difficulty might arise gordon had a nervous feeling as he again stepped into a taxicab and gave his order he wondered how many stray dogs and newsboys with broken legs would attach themselves to him on the way to dinner whenever the speed slowed down or they were halted by cars and autos his heart pounded painfully lest something new had happened but he arrived safely and swiftly at the station checked his suitcase and took another cab to the residence of mr holman without further incident the company were waiting for him and after the introductions they went immediately to the dining-room gordon took his seat with the feeling that he had bungled everything hopelessly and had arrived so late that there was no possible hope of his doing what he had been sent to do for the first few minutes his thoughts were a jumble and his eyes dazed with the brilliant lights of the room he could not single out the faces of the people present and differentiate them one from another his heart beat painfully against the stiff expanse of evening linen it almost seemed as if those near him could hear it he found himself starting and stammering when he was addressed as mr burnham his thoughts were mingled with white dogs 
newsboys, and ladies with scornful smiles. He was seated on the right of his hostess, and gradually her gentle manners gave him quietness. He began to gain control of himself, and now he seemed to see afar the keen eye of his chief, watching the testing of his new commissioner. His heart swelled to meet the demand made upon him. A strong purpose came to him, to rise above all obstacles and conquer in spite of circumstances. He must forget everything else and rise to the occasion. From that moment the dancing lights that multiplied themselves in the glittering silver and cut glass of the table began to settle into order, and slowly, one by one, the conglomeration of faces around the board resolved itself into individuals. There was the pretty, pale hostess, whose gentle ways seemed hardly to fit with her large, boisterous, though polished husband. Unscrupulousness was written all over his ruddy features, also a certain unhidden craftiness which passed for geniality among his kind. There were two others with faces full of cunning, both men of wealth and culture. One did not think of the word refinement in connection with them. Still, that might be conceded also but it was all dominated by the cunning that, on this occasion at least, was allowed to sit unmasked upon their countenances. They had outwitted an enemy, and they were openly exultant. Of the other guests, one was very young and sleek, with eyes that had early learned to evade. One was old and weary-looking, with a hunted expression. One was thick-set, with little eyes set close in a fat, selfish face. Gordon began to understand that these three but did the bidding of others. They listened to the conversation merely from a business standpoint, and not with any personal interest. They were there because they were needed, and not because they were desired. There was one bond which they seemed to hold in common, an alert readiness to combine for their mutual safety. This did not manifest itself in anything tangible, but the guest felt that it was there and ready to spring upon him at any instant. All this came gradually to the young man, as the meal with its pleasant formalities began. As yet, nothing had been said about the reason for his being there. "'Did you tell me you were in a wreck?' suddenly asked the hostess sweetly, turning to him. And the table talk hushed instantly, while the host asked, "'A wreck? Was it serious?' Gordon perceived his mistake at once. With instant caution, he replied smilingly, "'Oh, nothing serious.' a little breakdown on a freight ahead which required time to patch up. It reminded me, and then he launched boldly into one of the bright dinner stories for which he was noted among his companions at home. His heart was beating wildly, but he succeeded in turning the attention of the table to his joke, instead of to asking from where he had come and on what road. Questions about himself were dangerous, he plainly saw, if he would get possession of the valued paper, and get away without leaving a trail behind him. He succeeded in one thing more, which, though he did not know it, was the very thing his chief had hoped he would do when he chose him instead of a man who had wider experience. He made every man at the table feel that he was delightful, a man to be thoroughly trusted and enjoyed, who would never suspect them of having any ulterior motives in anything they were doing conversation for a little time rippled with bright stories and repartee, and Gordon began to feel almost as if he were merely enjoying a social dinner at home, with Julia Bentley down the table listening and haughtily smiling her approval. For the time the incidents of the dog and the newsboy were forgotten, and the young man felt his self-respect rising. 
His heart was beginning to get into normal action again, and he could control his thoughts. Then suddenly the crisis arrived. The soup and fish courses had been disposed of, and the table was being prepared for the entree. The host leaned back genially in his chair and said, "'By the way, Mr. Burnham, did you know I had an axe to grind in asking you here this evening? That sounds inhospitable, doesn't it? But I'm sure we're all grateful to the axe that has given us the opportunity of meeting you. We are delighted at having discovered you.' Gordon bowed, smiling at the compliment, and the murmurs of hearty assent around the table showed him that he had begun well. If only he could keep it up. But how— how was he to get possession of that magic bit of paper and take it away with him? Mr. Burnham, I was delighted to learn through a friend that you are an expert in code reading. I wonder, did the message that my friend Mr. Burns sent you this morning give you any intimation that I wanted you to do me a favor? Gordon bowed again. Yes, it was intimated to me that you had some message you would like deciphered, and I have also a letter of introduction from Mr. Burns. Here Gordon took the letter of introduction from his pocket and handed it across the table to his host, who opened it genially, as if it were hardly necessary to read what was written within, since they already knew so delightfully the man whom it introduced. The duplicate cipher writing in Gordon's pocket crackled knowingly when he settled his coat about him again, as if it would say, My time is coming. It is almost here now. The young man wondered, how he was to get it out without being seen, in case he should want to use it. But he smiled pleasantly at his host, with no sign of the perturbation he was feeling. "'You see,' went on Mr. Holman, "'we have an important message which we cannot read, and our expert, who understands all these matters, is out of town and cannot return for some time. It is necessary that we know as soon as possible the import of this writing.' While he was speaking, Mr. Holman drew from his pocket a long, soft leather wallet, and took therefrom a folded paper, which Gordon at once recognized as the duplicate of the one he carried in his pocket. His head seemed to reel, and all the lights go dark before him as he reached a cold hand out for the paper. He saw in it his own advancement coming to his eager grasp, yet when he got it would he be able to hold it? Something of the coolness of a man facing a terrible danger came to him now. By sheer force of will, he held his trembling fingers steady as he took the bit of paper and opened it carelessly, as if he had never heard of it before, saying as he did so, I will do my best. There was a sudden silence as every eye was fixed upon him while he unfolded the paper. He gave one swift glance about the table before he dropped his eyes to the task. Every face held the intensity of almost terrible eagerness, and on every one but that of the gentle hostess sat cunning craft that would stop at nothing to serve its own ends. It was a moment of almost awful import. The next instant Gordon's glance went down to the paper in his hand, and his brain and heart were seized in the grip of fright. There was no other word to describe his feeling. The message before him was clearly written in the code of the home office, and the words stared at him plainly, without the necessity of study. The import of them was the revelation of one of the most momentous questions that had to do with the Secret Service work, a question the answer to which had puzzled the entire department for weeks. That answer he now held in his hand, and he knew that if it should come to the knowledge of those outside, 
before it had done its work through the department, it would result in dire calamity to the cause of righteousness in the country, and incidentally crush the inefficient messenger who allowed it to become known. For the instant, Gordon felt unequal to the task before him. How could he keep these bloodhounds at bay? For such they were, he perceived from the import of the message, bloodhounds who were getting ill-gotten gains from innocent and unsuspecting victims, some of them little children. But the old chief had picked his man well. Only for an instant the glittering lights darkened before his eyes, and the cold perspiration started. Then he rallied his forces and looked up. The welfare of a nation's honor was in his hands, and he would be true. It was a matter of life and death, and he would save it or lose his own life if need be. He summoned his ready smile. "'I shall be glad to serve you if I can,' he said. "'Of course, I'd like to look this over a few minutes before attempting to read it. Codes are different, you know, from one another, but there is a key to them all if one can just find it out. This looks as if it might be very simple.' The spell of breathlessness was broken. The guests relaxed and went on with their dinner. Gordon, meanwhile, tried coolly to keep up a pretense of eating, the paper held in one hand while he seemed to be studying it. Once he turned it over and looked on the back. There was a large cross-mark in red ink at the upper end. He looked at it curiously and then instinctively at his host. "'That is my own mark,' said Mr. Holman. "'I put it there to distinguish it from other papers.' He was smiling politely, but he might as well have said, I put it there to identify it in case of theft, for every one at the table, unless it might be his wife, understood that that was what he meant. Gordon felt it, and was conscious of the other paper in his vest pocket. The way was going to be most difficult. Among the articles in the envelope which the chief had given him before his departure from Washington were a pair of shell-rimmed eyeglasses, a false moustache, a goatee, and a pair of eyebrows. He had laughed at the suggestion of high tragedy contained in the disguise, but had brought them with him for a possible emergency. The eyeglasses were tucked into the vest pocket beside the duplicate paper. He bethought himself of them now. Could he, under cover of taking them out, manage to exchange the papers? And if he should, how about that red ink mark across the back? Would anyone notice its absence? It was well to exchange the papers as soon as possible before the writing had been studied by those at the table, for he knew that the other message, though resembling this one in general words, differed enough to attract the attention of a close observer. Did he risk their noticing the absence of the red cross on the back? Slowly, cautiously, under cover of the conversation, he managed to get that duplicate paper out of his pocket and under the napkin in his lap. This he did with one hand, all the time ostentatiously holding the code message in the other hand, with its back to the people at the table. This hand, meanwhile, also held his coat lapel out, that he might the more easily search his vest pockets for the glasses. It all looked natural. The hostess was engaged in a whispered conversation with the maid at the moment. The host and the other guests were finishing the exceedingly delicious patties on their plates, and the precious code message was safely in evidence, Red Cross and all. They saw no reason to be suspicious about the stranger's hunt for his glasses. "'Oh, here they are,' he said, quite unconcernedly, and put on the glasses to look more closely at the paper, 
spreading it smoothly on the tablecloth before him, and wondering how he should get it into his lap in place of the one that now lay quietly under his napkin. The host and the guests politely refrained from talking to Gordon, and told each other incidents of the day in low tones that indicated the non-importance of what they were saying, while they waited for the real business of the hour. Then the butler removed the plates, pausing beside Gordon, waiting punctiliously with his silver tray to brush away the crumbs. This was just what Gordon waited for. It had come to him as the only way. Courteously, he drew aside, lifting the paper from the table and putting it in his lap, for just the instant while the butler did his work. But in that instant, the paper with the red cross was slipped under the napkin, and the other paper took its place upon the table, back down, so that its lack of a red cross could not be noted. So far, so good. But how long could this be kept up? And the paper under the napkin? How was it to be got into his pocket? His hands were like ice now, and his brain seemed to be at boiling heat as he sat back and realized that the deed was done and could not be undone. If anyone should pick up that paper from the table and discover the lack of the red mark, it would be all up with him. He looked up for an instant to meet the gaze of the six men upon him. They had nothing better to do now than to look at him until the next course arrived. He realized that not one of them would have mercy upon him if they knew what he had done. Not one, unless it might be the tired old-looking one, and he would not dare interfere. Still, Gordon was enabled to smile, and to say some pleasant nothings to his hostess when she passed him the salted almonds. His hand lay carelessly guarding the secret of the paper on the table, innocently, as though it just happened that he laid it on the paper. Sitting thus, with the real paper in his lap, under his large damask napkin, the false paper under his hand on the table, where he from time to time perused it, and his eyeglasses, which made him look most distinguished, still on his nose, he heard the distant telephone bell ring. He remembered the words of his chief, and sat rigid. From his position he could see the tall clock in the hall, and its gilded hands pointed to ten minutes before seven. It was about the time his chief had said he would be called on the telephone. What should he do with the two papers? He had but an instant to think, until the well-trained butler returned and announced that someone wished to speak with Mr. Burnham on the telephone. His resolve was taken. He would have to leave the substitute paper on the table. To carry it away with him might arouse suspicion, and moreover, he could not easily manage both without being noticed. The real paper must be put safely away at all hazards, and he must take the chance that the absence of the red mark would remain unnoticed until his return. Deliberately, he laid a heavy silver spoon across one edge of the paper on the table, and an ice-cream fork across the other, as if to hold it in place until his return. Then, rising with apologies, he gathered his napkin, paper and all, in his hand, holding it against his coat most naturally, as if he had forgotten that he had it and made his way into the front hall, where, in an alcove, was the telephone. As he passed the hat-rack, he swept his coat and hat off with his free hand, and bore them with him, devoutly hoping that he was not being watched from the dining-room. Could he possibly get from the telephone out the front door without being seen? Hastily, he hid the cipher message in an inner pocket. The napkin he dropped on the little telephone table, and taking up the receiver, he spoke. Hello? Yes. Oh, good evening. You don't say so. How did that happen? 
He made his voice purposely clear that it might be heard in the dining-room if anyone was listening. Then, glancing in that direction, he saw to his horror his host lean over and lift the cipher paper he had left on the table and hand it to the guest on his right. The messenger at the other end had given his sentence agreed upon, and he had replied according to the sentences laid down by the chief in his instructions. The other end had said good-bye and hung up, but Gordon's voice spoke, cool and clear in the little alcove, despite his excitement. All right. Certainly I can take time to write it down. Wait until I get my pencil. Now, I'm ready. Have you it there? I'll wait a minute until you get it. His heart beat wildly. The blood surged through his ears like rushing waters. Would they look for the little red mark? The soft clink of spoons and dishes and the murmur of conversation was still going on, but there was no doubt but that it was a matter of a few seconds before his theft would be discovered. He must make an instant dash for liberty while he yet could. Cautiously, stealthily, like a shadow from the alcove, one eye on the dining-room, he stole to the door and turned the knob. Yet even as he did so, he saw his recent host rise excitedly from his seat and fairly snatch the paper from the man who held it. His last glimpse of the room, where he had but three minutes before been enjoying the hospitality of the house, was a vision of the entire company starting up and pointing to himself even as he slid from sight. There was no longer need for silence. He had been discovered and must fight for his life. He shut the door quickly, his nerves so tense that it seemed as if something must break soon, opened and slammed the outer door, and was out in the great whirling city under the flare of electric lamps with only the chance of a second of time before his pursuers would be upon him. He came down the steps with the air of one who could scarcely take time to touch his feet to the ground, but must fly. End of chapter 2